Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. It's Wednesday, February 3rd, and by now you're well aware, as the rest of the country, that our federal vaccine policy has gone off the rails. This apparently started years ago. So we're going to look at why we're in the situation we're in and how we get out of it potentially. And we're also going to ask an expert about if that home remedy posted by a Toronto teenager involving a burnt orange and some brown sugar could actually bring back your sense of taste and smell if you've had COVID. But first. So we ran into a little issue here on the harbor ice. Uh, We are now uh, floating away from uh, where we started. And we're floating away quite fast. It's hard to see in the video. That is TikTok user Liam Milne, who uh, posted a video of himself along with several other friends and a family dog. They were out skating on Lake Ontario, just trying to get some exercise during this pandemic earlier this week. And the ice that they had stepped on literally broke away and was melting beneath their feet. I said to Chris immediately when uh, we looked at this story, I think we need to get somebody on that does rescues in this situation. Captain David Nickerson joins the show. He's with the fire, Toronto Fire Department. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. I, I think it's really interesting uh, that this guy managed to stay afloat on that piece of ice as it released from the shoreline. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the amount of times you have to get out onto the ice and rescue people uh, because the ice that they've stepped onto thinking it's solid has floated away from the shoreline? Well, that that was quite unique, actually. Um, you hear a lot of um, recently where people have fallen through the ice at Grenadier Pond and some of the other places around southern Ontario. Uh, we have had that in the past where people do get out on the ice sometimes in and around the Toronto Islands and the lagoons there where they've fallen through. Uh, it's quite unique to have a whole sheet break off in a case like that. Uh, very dangerous, you know, of course, and... Um, Right now, I would say no ice is safe ice at this point. Uh, it's just not thick enough, and um, especially with the temperatures that we've been experiencing for the last few days and what we will continue to experience, is, is, is very dangerous. And uh, to have somebody out there and, and to have the ice break away is uh, no doubt was scary for them and, and their families, and I'm glad that it all worked out in the, for the best for them. Not so scary that he didn't take out his phone to record it, though. Um yeah. What, what causes the ice to release from the shoreline? And uh, as well, what, what he was mentioning the speed of the ice and how quickly it was moving. Can you kind of account for what's what's occurring there? Yeah, certainly. Uh, wind shift, uh, for example, you know, we're having a... We saw, for example, I was working on Sunday and the entire harbour was just a skim of ice uh, during the day when we, when we got here in the morning. But by the afternoon, the wind speed had increased and the direction had changed somewhat. So the ice that we had in the harbor was uh, had broken up and then had been pushed to the basically the west end of the harbor. Uh, in a case that he was experienced, it could be the same thing. The wind direction might have been very calm, um, maybe from one direction and very calm. And then, as it does, the wind decides to change direction and uh, increase in speed and then break away. So could have a, just a crack in the ice and just the right amount of wind and and next thing you know you're you're adrift on a on a flow of ice there so very unfortunate and like I said uh, scary no doubt for them as well yeah a scary proposition to find yourself floating away from the shoreline in the winter uh, with your skates on on a piece of ice and now you realize it's not quite as uh, thick as you thought it once was and not as safe if you were to fall through the ice how long would you have right now in Lake Ontario 
Well, in Toronto Harbour, we have, uh, of course, the fireboat, and it's an icebreaker, and uh, we're staffed 365 days a year, and we're here every day. Um, it does still take a little bit of time, depending on where you are in the harbour. We like to be able to respond, um, you know, in a in a timely fashion. But sometimes, if we know we're going for an ice rescue, we'll await for additional crews as well that have the gear to to help out and to effectively um, respond to that. So it could it could be ten or fifteen minutes, and that would probably be the longest uh, ten or fifteen minutes of somebody's life. And um, you know that that. It, it seems like a long time, but of course we have to get everybody and we've got to get them on the boat and, mm-hmm. and the gear that we have, and and then respond and 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 respond in a safe manner as well. That's if you're notified. I mean, it's a big lake, it's a big shoreline. If somebody doesn't know you're going out skating, if you independently figure, you know what, I've got, uh, why would I go to a rink when it's right there? I can just jump yeah. on the ice, Lake Ontario. It's a massive skating rink. Um, you know, you could see how people maybe didn't, haven't alerted somebody to the fact that they're skating. So I, I would assume it's sort of like a hike. You should let people know if you're going to skate on, on a body of water. Absolutely. Just, uh, you know, as, as what we're told as far as swimming, you know, you're going to have a buddy system. And if you're going to go skating, uh, you should have people there and you should have the ability to um Called possibly with a cell phone. Again, I'm not. I'm not recommending recommending any uh, skating on Toronto Harbor this year at all. There's just uh, the ice thickness is just not there, and the, the temperatures and it, it's just not there. So, um, but yeah, you certainly should know and let somebody know where you are and and uh, where you're where you plan on being because uh, you know minutes minutes count, and uh, we want to be able to respond. And certainly, we don't we don't want to have any tragedies in the future. How would you determine if ice is thick enough to skate on if you're the average person? What should you be doing? Because I know there's people listening to us that are in Toronto and beyond. You've already mentioned the harbor's not a good idea this year. It's just not cold enough. We didn't get the uh, the ice formation that we have in, in the past. Uh, is there any way to determine if uh, the thickness is adequate for skating? Yeah, I think what I've heard in the past, the general rule of thumb is that it's uh, four inches or 10 centimeters thick it, uh, it could be safe for, for an individual to go on I, I know at Grenadier Pond for example I believe the city has um, people that will, will inspect the ice and they will indicate whether it is safe or, or not or whether you should be staying off it um, so those are considerations uh, again speaking just because I'm in the harbour Mm-hmm. Uh, we never recommend in the harbor at all because even if the ice was thick, and we've had some amazing winters where the ice has been upwards of one to two feet thick, uh, the problem with that is that we take the fireboat out multiple times a day to uh, break a channel for us to be able to go to different parts of the harbor in case we have to respond to an emergency or some sort of an incident. So even though the ice might be thick, there's a lot of uh, there could be some open channels that people aren't realizing that are there that we've broken. So that has happened in the past that um, you know we're out there with uh, with the icebreaker and, and making these uh, routes for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's why I recommend strongly recommend against not skating in Toronto Harbour at all. And- be- before I let you go, uh, could you be charged if you've gone out on the ice and need to be rescued? Oh, that's a good question, and I'll leave that one for our, our, our friends, the uh, Toronto Police uh, and the Marine Unit, to, to answer that. Um, as far as the fire side of things, we, 
uh, we wouldn't get into that, but uh, I'll leave that question for the, for the police at this time. You're you're in charge of the rescue. We're we're looking after <laughs> we're looking after making sure we can rescue people and, and help out and do whatever it takes to uh, to keep everyone safe and uh, bring them home at night. Well, we appreciate that, Captain Nickerson. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. Trudeau gave more details on the plan to produce a vaccine domestically yesterday. It's Novavax, and it would be produced at a plant that is being retooled and built in Montreal. Should be producing a million doses a month by the time things get up and running. And this Novavax vaccine, it has not been approved yet by Health Canada, but uh, the trials are showing that this two-dose vaccine is 89% effective and 60% effective against the South African variant. Uh, the plant, by, by the way, is not going to be able to produce anything until year's end. So Trudeau was grilled by journalists during the second, hand of the, press, the second half of the press conference, mainly because if we want to reach our goal of having everyone vaccinated by the end of September, as Trudeau's been hanging on to that date um, for dear life, we are really at the mercy of the EU. And we know that the EU has put in some uh, protectionist restrictions uh, here to talk about it, John Adams, volunteer board chair of the Best Medicines Coalition. Thanks for joining us, John. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you for having me. So did you find it surprising that we're not one of the 120 countries on the EU exemptions list? Um, no, but let's talk about where the real problem is. Um, and the, 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 the issues with the EU are a symptom of the problem. The real problem is that uh, 40 years ago, uh, we made 80% of our vaccines and drugs, um, and we imported 20% of them. Today, it's upside down. Uh, we import, we have to depend upon others for 85% of our vaccines and prescription drugs. This is a bad scene, um, and it exposes us to the political pressures of the countries where uh, the producers actually make drugs and vaccines. Um, and it's, it's, it's good news that a year after COVID presented itself, um, the government of Canada has made its first tentative deal for domestic production of a relevant vaccine. Uh, but that's, that, those vaccines won't be available until the second quarter uh, uh, of 2022 at the earliest, because even after that plant is built and is certified and starts production, it takes three to four months to produce that particular kind of vaccine. Uh, so we're talking, if we're lucky, the first doses coming out of that plant in April of 2022. Um, Trudeau we was... Uh, yeah, for sure we're vulnerable. Trudeau was asked about this and why the UK yesterday uh, focused on, you know, putting together, uh, getting plants to produce their own vaccine and they're able to do that now at the beginning of the pandemic and why he didn't. Do you think... Uh, you know, everything was, uh, it was just, we were so out of the game that we couldn't pivot that quickly? Um, yes, we're out of the game is an interesting expression. Um, uh, since the 1980s, there has actually been a, a campaign uh, to not have partnerships with the developers of vaccines and the developers of new drugs. Why is that? Um, and, uh, well, I think it's bias against uh, capitalism, bias against investors who make big bets um, uh, on risky things. I mean, there's literally been the, the private uh, between, uh, I, I'm no fan of a guy named Donald Trump, but I will give credit where credit is due. 
Operation Warp Speed has made a huge, huge difference. And the Novavax vaccine that Canadians are eventually going to benefit from um, is a direct result of the U.S. taxpayers spending not billions, but trillions of dollars in working with private companies to develop production facilities before the vaccines have been clinically tested and approved by the health regulators. Uh, that's something we haven't done in Canada for many, many years. We actually have, you had a guest on last week, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who spoke about the deterioration in the working relationship between federal and provincial governments and the, and the biotech industry in Canada that's happened. Uh, it's, it's, it's across all political parties. And we mm-hmm. they're, they're not just, we've been going after cheap drugs manufactured abroad by people making poverty wages. Um, and we have to accept our moral responsibility that if we want domestic production, we're going to have to pay the bill. Okay, so let me just bring, I just want to touch on something you just brought up there. Sure. The fact, you know, where we were trying to get uh, generic drugs, uh, which pretty much pharmaceutical companies don't love, right? Because they're not going to make uh, the money on that. And we haven't been investing in pharmaceutical companies. Is that one of the reasons why? Is this sort of a, yeah, we'll, we'll sell you the vaccine, Canada. But, you know, if you want the recipe, that's not going to happen because you didn't support us. So we're not going to support you by giving you the recipe so that you can domestically produce, you know, Pfizer and Moderna at home. Is is Could that be part of the problem here? It, it's, it's a, it's a, it's not just lack of trust. It's actual act of mistrust of the intent. And we don't have effective uh, history of collaborations in Canada between governments and between the developers of new drugs and new vaccines. Um, hopefully, I mean, the, the Montreal facility under construction is going to, to be a public facility. Um, and we'll have to, we don't, we, we need, the government has been incredibly secretive about the arrangements it's tried to make with the vaccine mm-hmm. producers. Um, and we don't have a, any details on the delivery schedule between April and September uh, for the deals and the tentative deals that have been made. And we need to be able to open up the books so that Canadians have a clear picture of what's going on. That, that's my view. Um, and, that's the, and, and that's a responsibility of government. Because these are deals or tentative deals that the federal government has made with these uh, developers of these vaccines. Yeah, yesterday in the press conference, Trudeau basically said, you know, uh, I've had these conversations. Don't worry, I've had conversations with uh, people in the EU and we'll be getting our drugs. Just trust me, rest assured, you can just rely on those conversations. Well, unless he's going to broadcast those conversations, how am I supposed to trust that, you know, both parties are going to play fair? Uh, let's other countries, uh, the United States and countries in Europe have published uh, redacted versions of the contracts they have with these vaccine makers. Uh, why hasn't Canada? I mean, there's a difference between blind faith and good faith. And with respect to the prime minister's approach has been, trust me. We, and, and, and with respect, based upon the evidence of the federal government's response um, to the pandemic, so far, we don't have the evidence to support why we should trust them. Show me what you've done, please. John, can I play you a clip from yesterday's press conference? It's it's just really interesting. Sure. I think uh, 
This was a, a question that was asked. Uh, we're going to start with the Prime Minister, but he's in the middle of answering a question. And um, it was about the EU export restrictions. Have a little listen to this, and then I want to get your take on, on this, this clip. On the EU export restrictions, what are, what are they meant for? Other than to, uh, are, they, are they meant to protect Europe's uh, supply? Are they meant to keep dr- these drugs out of Canada? And we have a free trade deal with the European Union. What good is that? Uh, in my conversations with uh, the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, uh, she highlighted the need for greater transparency on vaccine production uh, to make sure that things are being fair. They express certain concerns uh, around uh, AstraZeneca and uh, Great Britain, for example, uh, that is preoccupying Europe. But I'll uh, allow the Europeans to talk uh, a little bit more about that uh, uh, if, uh, if they get asked. Uh, our focus is on ensuring that the contracts that we've signed uh, with Pfizer and with the Moderna in particular, continue to be respected. And the assurances that uh, I've received, the assurances that this government has received, uh, is that these transparency measures uh, will not interfere with uh, shipments destined for Canada. Do you have that in writing? International uh, affairs um, and agreements between uh, nations are based an awful lot on uh, firm commitments made uh, in conversations and shared publicly. Um, it's not like a small claims court where you, you can show a, a document. The conversations I had with the President of the European Commission uh, were enough to uh, reassure me and should be enough to reassure all Canadians uh, that the European Union uh, is uh, extremely mindful that Canada's uh, contracts be respected and that uh, our supply of vaccines uh, not be uh, not be interfered with. Do we have an in writing? Clearly, that pause was a no. What do you make of that? Is it unusual that we wouldn't have a written guarantee on delivery? Um, I would like to see what we have uh, in the federal contracts with the vaccine makers. Um, it's ironic, uh, to say the least. The prime minister is saying the Europeans are putting in these export controls because they want more transparency. They have deals with the vaccine makers, but they don't know what the deals are the vaccine makers have with countries outside of Europe. They are demanding disclosure of the, of the details of those shipments uh, before they allow those shipments ex-Europe. Um, they want transparency. Um, the prime minister is not providing this yet the same transparency to Canadians. I find it ironic. Let me ask you what's this. In what's, what's, what's in the deals with, with Pfizer and with Moderna and with the proposed deals with AstraZeneca, et cetera? Um, the, what the prime minister said with the Novavax, the facility in Montreal um, for the, uh, domestic vaccine production, they have a memorandum on understanding. Let's make that public, please, John, along with the other deals. And then we'll be- all know. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. And BNN yesterday was reporting that the government's, you know, preparing diplomatic actions if Europe breaks shipment agreements. What do we have that we could use to ensure delivery? Like, really? Um, a wish and a promise. And finger, fingers crossed. Wow. All right. Um, I, I really don't think we want to get into a trade war with Europe uh, over this. Um, I, I noticed in some media reports that we're hoping that somebody uh, will get product from uh, South Korea, a plant in South Korea that's licensed one of these vaccines and will escape the transparency and the scrutiny of the Europeans. 
Um, that's that's where these are when you don't have domestic production and you rely upon uh, uh, suppliers abroad, then you are exposed to these political risks. It's so in forty in, years of forty years of bad policy in Canada. So in order to to you know get out from under the bad policy and start anew. We have to establish some sort of trust between ourselves and the major pharmaceutical companies out there uh, so that they will invest in Canada again. Is there a party that you can uh, point to that you think is able to do that within uh, government right now? Um, uh, That's the challenge for all the parties, right? I mean, I don't want and I don't think Canadians want to be completely reliant on, on taxpayer funding. We want investor, private investors, to be part of the solution here. Um, this is a mixed economy. Uh, we need to find a new way of balancing uh, incentives and de-risking some of these investments. That's that's what uh, Operation Warp Speed did. It de-risked massive investments. I mean, like the company, the uh, Novavax, with the memorandum, the tentative deal for the plant in Montreal. That's their eighth plant. In one year, they've gone from zero plants to eight plants in six countries. Canada would be the seventh country. Uh, we we're not number one on the hit parade. We're in the middle of the pack. Uh, if we want uh, we're getting the results of being in the middle of the pack right now. Canadians are getting the results. Uh, if we want to be uh, uh, quicker uh, to the front, then we have to change our policies. Simple as that. Yeah, we have to be better friends with the people that matter. And and I think we need to stop blaming uh, private investors who are seeking profits, um, unless uh, you expect the taxpayers to pay for everything. John, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been really insightful. Anytime. Take care. Thank you very much. You may have uh, met somebody who's lost their sense of uh, taste and smell during the COVID pandemic. It's it's a big problem. I know somebody that still hasn't regained theirs, and they contracted COVID last March. It's a long time to be without your senses. And uh, so this TikTok video, which was posted by a Toronto student, has been getting a lot of attention. Basically, he and his mom both had COVID-19 last a year and they both lost their taste uh, sense of taste and smell. So his mom showed him a home remedy that her mother gave her in Jamaica involving an orange and some brown sugar and he shared it on TikTok. Have a little listen. If you lost your taste buds, I'm going to show you guys how to get it back real quick. You want to take a nice fresh orange and burn it all the way around. Make sure it's dark, charcoal, black, blacker than your Air Forces. What you want to do after that is cut it, slice it down the middle, and then peel it off. It's going to be a little hot, so you might want to use a fork or something, like a, a tongue or something. It should come off pretty easily once you get the hang of it. Boys and girls, I'm no scientist, but it does work. I'm telling you, this is some Jamaican remedies. It's going to work, I promise you. Next thing you want to do is put it in a cup or something you're going to eat it in. Mash it up. Make sure all the black charcoal pieces are off it. You can add some brown sugar. I'm not sure about white sugar, but I know the brown sugar works. Come on now. Put about two teaspoons or how healthy you want it. It should work. All right. And apparently people have been writing him and saying, thank you very much. This has helped. I'm getting my sense of taste and smell back. Uh, Dr. Andrew Lane joins the show now. He's director of the Division of Rhinology and Skull-Based Surgery at Johns Hopkins University in the School of Medicine. We've had you on before, doctor, so I'm so happy you can join us again. What's going on here uh, with this kid's remedy? 
the the orange guy is this something that can work and if so why all right well thanks kelly for having me back this is a really interesting kind of idea um and i guess if i lost my sense of smell and taste and i was desperate for something i might try this because i can't see it doing any harm but uh as a scientist i don't see why it should help so there's a lot to kind of unpack in this okay Most well of what, let, yeah, go ahead. let's start yeah well let's start unpacking what you say about what people think of as taste is not really, uh, it's really smell. It's not taste. Taste is what happens in your tongue and it does sort of salty, bitter, sour, sweet. But what you think of as food taste is really flavor. It's the smell that comes up from your mouth and throat and goes to the back of your nose. So when you're eating food, there's a lot of different stimuli at the same time. There's a smell that comes up to your nose. There's also sensory information like seeing the food and what your tongue is sensing and the texture and all that. And that all goes together to kind of give you what you think of as your taste. So, you know, with COVID, which is, you know, the cause of all this loss of smell we're seeing, that's really, we think, affecting just the sense of smell alone because the virus infects the cells that do the sense of smell. We don't know if it affects the tongue. We don't know if it affects the parts of the brain that interpret the smells. Um, But uh, the good news is that for most people, the sense of smell when it's lost will come back because that olfactory tissue regenerates with time. So as that is background, um, why does this work or why does it work for some people? I would say there's a few things. For one thing, this is a really, really strong stimulus for, like, your, for your tongue, you know, all the sweetness, bitterness. You know you're sensing something, so that's very encouraging to you because you've been smelling or tasting nothing. Mm-hmm. Also, the, the flavor of orange is something that you have a very strong memory of. You're very familiar with orange. So there are all those other cues I was talking about, about the texture, about the, the other visual cues and texture and things that can trigger a memory that makes you feel maybe like you're tasting it, even if you're not. I think really the main thing, though, is that most people don't really completely lose their sense of smell. They still have a little bit of it left. So if, if you focus on it like this and you give a really strong stimulus, you're going to activate maybe a little bit of what you have left. And then the other thing is that a lot of people recover anyway with time. So, you know, most people, 75% about within two weeks and maybe 90% over some months. So it's really hard to say when someone says this helped them, did it really help them or were they going to get better anyway? So are you essentially jarring your olfactory memory? Is it possible to do that? In, in, a, in a way, yes. I mean, smell is very, very in, in, uh, intertwined with memory. So you may perceive that you're smelling something or tasting something when really you're activating a memory of it. And, mm. and that to you and your perception, it's the same thing. But it may not be working through the same pathways. You may not be activating, let's say, your olfactory nerve to do it. You may be using other senses to give you that perception. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. So when you talk about um, the orange and how it's a strong smell and it's something we're familiar with, the fact that he charted it, that, that might not intensify the flavor. Because I know you're not a chef. You're a scientist. <laughs> but I'm guessing you haven't really you know, uh, studied oranges in your, in your practice. So you wouldn't know if that intensifies the uh the the taste of an orange to char it up i mean i've never tried before but i guess i guess it's worth a try and you're taking you know a sour and a sweet and mixing them together those are two senses that we can sense with our uh taste buds right with the tongue not with necessarily the nose but with the tongue so yeah Yeah. And, and again when people lose their sense of taste you know quote unquote they're really probably not losing anything in their tongue so those senses are all ready to go to be activated Okay, and so I guess there's no harm in trying at the end of the day with this uh, this remedy. However, it's not 
based on anything scientific. An orange, burning an orange is probably not going to bring back your senses, but you could indeed maybe uh, start retraining your senses to awaken. Yeah, so that's probably the only treatment we have for this right now, unfortunately, besides just patients and waiting for it to get better on its own, is we actually instruct patients to do sort of olfactory rehab, to to go home and certain times of, of the day, sniff some really strong odors for maybe 10 or 20 seconds each, and really concentrate on the memory of what that's supposed to smell like. And there is some evidence that if you do that over a period of time, maybe a third of people will have some measurable improvement in their sense of smell, which is not to say it necessarily goes back to normal, but you can detect a, a change in the function, improvement with function. Right. So you're basically exercising your olfactory senses. Whatever you have left, you're trying, you're trying yeah. to bring it out. And then, and then over time, it may get better on its own, which is kind of the part of this that's hard to sort out. You know what I think would be interesting is try some, some wasabi. I wonder if that, like, if, if this orange technique works, that should give a shot to the senses. I don't yeah, know if well, anybody's ever felt that before, but you get a wasabi, it goes straight up to your brain, it feels like. Right. So it's activating many different sensations together, which, again, kind of is probably a good strategy uh, to try to get you back some perception, at least, that you're, that you're tasting better, is to activate other senses. Dr. Lane, what's the, if at all, if you have the stats on this, I'd love to hear. Uh, I might be throwing a hard bar at you here, but do you have stats on on the time frame of when people start to regain their sense of smell and taste, or is it an individual situation? Uh, it's individual, but in you know in in larger groups. I mean, when people have done studies looking at large cohorts of people, it seems that within seventy within two weeks, about seventy five percent will get it back. And All right. Then, what if you don't? Well, so if you don't get it back, so this has been an entity before there was COVID. People have this post viral olfactory loss that that can come back over sometimes over very long periods of time can be, you know, anecdotally, somebody might regain it after years. You know, usually we say that the longer it goes and the more complete the loss is, the less likely it's going to come back. But I would never say that there's no hope because there are cases of people suddenly having their sense of small return, really not doing anything special. It just comes back over a period of time, probably through regeneration or, re- or retraining, essentially, plasticity of the brain. Right. If we're talking about memorable experiences, I would imagine that uh, positive experiences would, I mean, I'm guessing, help you regain your, your senses quicker because it's, you know, you've got the memory associated with it. It's something you like. Should you be concentrating on foods that you really like? Uh, I, I think that you may have a better chance of, of strengthening those connections that allow whatever smell function you have left to be able to uh, elicit a, a sensation of taste or smell by focusing on things that you know, so you can, you know, bring those, build up those connections. But, you know, honestly, we don't, we don't know the answer to that. All right, Dr. Lane, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for sparing some time to talk about this. Happy to do it. Take care. Have a great day. Cheers. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Don't forget, we broadcast live Monday through Friday between 9 and noon. And if you want to listen online, you can at 640toronto.com. Until then, talk to you later. Bye.